Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? It's great to see you. It's great, as always, to be together. Let's not neglect coming together. This morning, I have the privilege of uh, looking at the scriptures together with you and uh, reminding you of the gospel that we all need. And so, uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jeff. I'm uh, the outreach pastor here at Cornerstone, and uh, I'm yeah, happy to be able to speak with you a few extra times this month than, than normal. So uh, before we get into that, let's, uh, let's pray. So Father, thank you that you, you not only welcome us, but that you have the power to change us. You have the power to heal. You have the power to forgive. You have the power to give hope where there is none. And so this morning we come to you in need of hope. We come to you in need of of saving. And we need your power in our lives, Lord. We know that we can't do this on our own. We need the power of the resurrection of Jesus in our life. And so would you soften our hearts this morning? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to respond? And would you do a work in us, Father? We, we come to you with, with, from all different places this morning with all different sorts of needs. And so we want to come to you in faith that you can meet us where we're at, that you can speak to us in the way that we need to hear, and you can do a work in us. So would you do that for your glory? Amen. So before I started at Cornerstone, uh, I had the opportunity to travel to India uh, multiple times, and, and for one of those times, I actually I spent a, a longer period of time living in, in southern India, and uh, I got to know some, some Indian humor, so I thought I'd try some of the jokes out on you guys here this morning, see how they go. <clears throat> so here's a good one. Why do Malus wear Mandu? Ever thought about that? Why do Malus wear mandu? Because in the monsoon flood, the mandu can be tucked upward as the water rises. It's a good one, eh? All right, all right, let's try this one. Why is industrial productivity so low in Kerala? Why is it that in Kerala, the most densely populated state in India, the productivity levels are so low? Well, I'll tell you, it's because 86% of the shift time is spent on lifting, folding, and retying their lungis. So weird that you guys aren't finding this hilarious. I thought for sure this was going to kill. Actually, I planned on none of you laughing, and for reasons that will become apparent in a moment. So just hold on to this awkward moment together. And we're going to revisit the reason why I started the sermon off this way. So last week, uh, we started a four-week sermon series. It's called uh, Living Greatly. And we're trying to look seriously at the, the two teachings of Jesus that have been called great in some way. Um, one of them is when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment directly? And he says to love the Lord your God with all of who you are. And he says to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. 
can be found in a couple different places in the Gospels, but Matthew 22 is the one that we looked at. The other great teaching is called the Great Commission. And this is one of the final teachings that Jesus gave before he uh, left and rose back to heaven. And he, there's a lot of weight placed on this mission that he gives to his disciples because he gives them his authority. He says, this is what your lives are to be about, that more people would come to know me and love me. And so it's been called throughout church history the Great Commission. And so last week you looked at a bit of an introduction to these ideas. Um, and this morning, we're going to kind of, before we spend a Sunday on each one of those, we're going to look at this idea um, that is so important uh, because it is probably one of the single most, uh, one of the biggest influencers of how we live these ideas out. And it's something we're doing all the time. Um, and so what we want to look at is this morning is just sort of recognize that and just think about this concept a little bit more. And the concept is called contextualization. So um, this maybe is going to be a bit more teachy this morning than preachy, which I don't know if you, which you prefer. But if you're here this morning and you're not part of our church or you're, you're new to faith or checking out Christianity for the first time, um, you get to kind of listen in on us as we uh, talk about trying to uh, be true to what Jesus has taught us to live. And it's kind of us trying to deal with uh, our own hypocrisy, saying we know this is what Jesus has called us to live and do, and yet we're finding ourselves not doing that or not doing it well. And so let's not be hypocrites, and let's try to, do, let's try to be true to what Jesus has asked us to do. So that's sort of the goal and you get to kind of listen in on us this morning if, if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. And so contextualization. And so the sermon's called The Great Context. So textualization, I've, I've kind of defined it simply like this. You can read along on the screen. It says, taking into consideration the context in which you are communicating a message and then adjusting accordingly. I'll say that again. Taking into consideration the context in which you are communicating a message and then adjusting accordingly. So, as an example, if I were to tell you a joke that required an understanding of Indian culture and nuances between different states and Indian apparel, if I were to tell a joke to, to a crowd of people who know nothing about Indian culture, it probably wouldn't go over very well. It probably wouldn't be very funny. The only thing funny would be how unfunny it is. And so I use that as just a bit of an example to show that, uh, you know, the context and the crowd in which you're speaking uh, matters a great deal. And so since you are always speaking into a particular context, the question is not, should we contextualize our message or not? But the question is always, how well are we contextualizing our message? Now, I know some of you are already thinking to yourselves, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you suggesting that we just tell people what they want to hear? If the gospel is so offensive, we shouldn't be one bit surprised if people are offended by our message. I knew that Jeff was a soft liberal. You're, some of you are thinking it. I know it. So let me be clear. I am not suggesting that we only tell people what they want to hear. I am suggesting that we need to do the work 
to learn how to speak and act in such a way so that people can hear us. Or more importantly, that our message would resonate in their heart deeply enough that they would act on it. It's great to have answers, but that is only helpful if they are answers to the questions people are asking. And so I want to start by illustrating this point on a, on a large global scale to help demonstrate the need for this. But my hope is that we wouldn't just stay thinking on a, on a global level, but that we would be able to start thinking in smaller circles and that we would actually start thinking about ourselves and the people in our lives. And so that's kind of the framework I want to, I want to work through this morning. And so Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is right at the beginning of the Bible, and it's the story of the fall of, of mankind. It's the story of God giving them an instruction, giving them an option to not love. And then here we have Adam and Eve choosing not love. And in this story, as soon as they experience to not love God, to disobey him by eating of the tree, there are three new emotions that are introduced into the world that up until that point they had not existed before. And we know that they come into existence for the first time because we can actually, well, sometimes it actually names them directly in the, in the passage, but other times you can just see that this is what people do when they are feeling that way. And so God comes looking, they eat from the tree and then God comes looking for them and he says, where are you? Because every day they walked together and they talked together and they were with God and things were right in the world. But then all of a sudden, God's looking for them and he can't find them. And you see right away that they are hiding. They're hiding behind a tree. They're hiding, we're told, because they're scared. They have fear. They had never felt fear like this before. But all of a sudden, things are different. And this is a new emotion that was influencing how they were acting and relating to God. The second thing they do is they cover themselves up with leaves. They had been naked prior to that. They had been fully exposed, fully seen, and they had never had a problem with that in their life. But now all of a sudden they experience a new feeling. Shame. A feeling of shame. And when you feel shameful about something, you try to cover it up. We do that in our lives all the time. Where, we, we, where you find yourself hiding, you will find shame in your life. And the last thing they do is they refuse to take responsibility for their actions, and they start blame-shifting. I didn't do it. The woman that you gave to me, she told me to do it. And then she says, well, it was the serpent. The serpent that told us to do it. It's not our fault. And so they start blame-shifting, not taking responsibility for the actions. And this is a clear typical expression of someone feeling guilty. They do not want to take responsibility for their actions. And so these three new feelings, fear, guilt, and shame, have now come into existence and they, have to, they begin to influence and control the behavior of humanity. Now what's interesting about this and why I'm starting here is that sociologists have come to see that, and these aren't even Christian sociologists, so don't, I'm, not, I'm not bringing kind of a Christian understanding of the world. These are, you can look into this. These are um, people that have studied cultures of the world. They have come to see this and recognize this. 
that if you look around the world, you can, generally speaking, divide the world into three categories of culture. Cultures where people are trying to find solutions for feelings of guilt. Cultures where people are trying to find solutions to feelings of shame. And cultures where people are trying to find solutions to feelings of fear. This isn't to say that individuals in those parts of the country don't experience a variety of emotions or, or, or don't also feel uh, fear and shame if they're in a guilt culture. It's not to say that. And it's not to say that there aren't individuals within those cultures that are the exception to the rule. It's that when you look at the culture as a whole, you will find that this is uh, true on a general level about cultures. And it influences societies and kind of faux pas in what people are looking for and trying to find solutions for and trying to avoid. So these patterns start to emerge. So you can see on the screen, Steve, if you want to throw that on, this is a, a graph of culture orientation. And um, there's, a, there's not a lot of information. This is from an actual study, so they weren't able to do a lot of um, studying in Africa uh, because of the nature of those countries. Uh, but um, if you were to look at all those white spaces, mo- generally speaking, a lot of them would be green. And so you have three kind of um, cultures of the world. And, and in North America and Western countries, you see they are predominantly guilt-oriented. And in, in Asian and Middle Eastern and some South American countries, you see they are primarily shame-oriented. And in Africa, you have uh, countries that are primarily fear-oriented. Now, we are in North America. And we have grown up in this culture. And unless you have spent uh, a significant time outside of our culture, you're somewhat blind to some of the things going on here. And things just sort of seem like that's how it is everywhere because that's the water that we swim in. And you're a fish saying, what's water, right? But if you spend time outside of this, uh, outside of Western um, civilization and you look into other nations and cultures, you'll see there's things that are organized and totally different and people care about different things and value different things. And so if you grow up in North America in a guilt-oriented culture, you will find that presentations of the gospel are primarily centered around feelings of guilt. And so the the gospel presentation goes something like, you're guilty, and what you need is to be forgiven. And so Jesus forgives you. He takes on your guilt on himself, and instead he offers you innocence. And so now Jesus declares you innocent. And so this feeling of guilt that you've been dealing with and you wrestle with all the time, Jesus is the solution to your problem because he offers you innocence. That is true and good and right and necessary teaching. We need to, to be, become aware of our own guilt. However, if you go to a different culture, like a shame-oriented culture, you'll find that, that is not the, that's not the question rolling around in people's heart. They're not so concerned about, I'm this guilty person who needs to be made innocent. I am, I feel shame. I don't want to be disconnected from my family, family, community, a sense of belonging, a sense of acceptance. That's what I long for. That's what my heart is craving. And so if you go into a 
a shame-oriented culture and you start talking about Jesus being your innocence as the main thing that you're talking about, how you talk about the gospel, it's not going to resonate very well. And missionaries have discovered this and, and talked about this all the time, that you need to be sensitive to the context that you're speaking and you need to think about the presentation of not only your words but your actions too because they might be communicating something that you're not intending them to communicate or they might not just really be understanding or connecting with what you're saying. If you're in a a fear-based culture, the thing that you're looking for is power because you're scared. There's a a greater perception and um, uh, reality that they are in tune with of the spiritual world. And so things like taboos and spiritual warfare are way more prevalent in African nations. And so they want power over these things. And so you need to think about how you're speaking about the gospel differently as you go to different places of the world. You see, there is no universal presentation of the gospel. We think there is because that's what we're used to hearing. And so we think unless you say these words in this way, you haven't really said the gospel. But the gospel is robust. This is the news about Jesus coming to resolve the problems of the world. You can never capture the good news of Jesus in a nice little statement. You're always only capturing a little chunk of it. This should not intimidate us. You might say, wow, there's so much I need to know. There's so much about this. How can I possibly learn it all? It should not intimidate us. Rather, it should free us up to stop feeling like we have to say a particular phrase or a message for people to respond it, it, allows the, it releases you from the pressure of saying, I need to squeeze in this sentence somehow so that they can respond. It, it, it frees us up to stop and listen to say, what's going on in this person's life? How are they experiencing the brokenness, the discomfort of their own brokenness? And how can I experience through words and actions that the grace and love of Jesus, the found in Jesus, is what is missing in their hearts and in their minds. Tim Keller, who's written a lot about contextualization, says this. Contextualization means translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence in particulars of the gospel itself. And so we're not saying just get rid of, get rid of the, the news of Jesus. We're saying let's consider the context and realize that maybe not every person needs to hear the same thing as their introduction to Jesus and the, and the, the news of his work in this earth. The Apostle Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. Says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, 
though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. Are you tracking with this? So as to win those as many not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all possible means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that they may share in its blessings. It says, I have freedom in Christ. And I'm going to use that freedom to actually limit myself so that I can become and meet people where they're at. I can adapt. I can speak in a way that I need to speak. I can act in a way that I need to act so that people can can have the brush that's blocking them from seeing Jesus cleared out of the way so they have a clear view of the cross and what it means to them. You see this throughout the New Testament, and I would love to go into a deeper study of this, and you know, we could do that one time where we actually look more deeply into some of these passages and show you that, that this is what's happening in the Bible too. You have to do this well, and you have to do this with wisdom. But this is how the, the apostles spoke, and this is how the Gospels are written. I'll give you a small, maybe silly example, but I think it's important. Craig Bloomberg is a New Testament scholar who points out that in Matthew's parable of the mustard seed, the sower sows his seed in a field in, in Matthew chapter 13, while in Luke, the sowing is in a garden. Jesus never grew mustard plants, or sorry, Jews never grew mustard plants in gardens, but always out on farms, while Greeks in the Mediterranean basin did the opposite. And so it appears that each gospel writer was changing somewhat the words of Jesus for the sake of the hearers. Craig Bloomberg says this, there is a technical contradiction between a field and a garden, but not a material one. Luke changes the wording precisely so that his audience is not distracted from the lesson by puzzling over an improbable practice. It's not about whether it's a field or a garden. There's something else Jesus is talking about. So he's going to adapt the words because they're not really that important in themselves. The essence of them is, is the same. So let's just use words that people can understand. The result is that Luke's audience receives his teaching with the same impact as the original audience. Throughout the book of Acts, this is really interesting to track. You can see that Paul and the apostles are talking to very different crowds. They've just, they've just taken on this, the Great Commission, and now they're going out and they're talking about uh, Jesus. And you can see, as you track the life of Paul, as the book of Acts does, that they're talking to different crowds. In Acts 13, it's Bible believers. In Acts 14, it's peasant polytheists. In Acts 17, it's sophisticated pagans. Acts 20, it's the Christian elders. Acts 21, it's a hostile Jewish mob. Acts 24, it's the governing elites. In all of these ways, you can actually see that Paul is changing the things that he's talking about and the words that he's using as he interacts with these different crowds. In Acts 13:39, when Paul is talking to the Jews who believe in the Old Testament, they're really, they're, they really know the law. They really know the law and how to follow it. His message to them is, the law can't justify you. 
In effect, he's saying, your moral effort cannot save you. You think you are good enough, but you are not good enough. Because he is talking to people that, who know the rules really, really well and how, what it means to follow them. In Acts 17, Paul is talking to a group of people who could not care less about the Bible. He urges them not to turn away from their, uh, their morality that will save them. What he does is he urges them to turn away from their idols and turn to God who is their true source of joy. In effect, he is saying, you think you are free, but you are actually enslaved to dead idols. He's talking about sin having a grip on them in some way, but he's actually approaching the topic in very different ways to address the audience that he's speaking to. And throughout the whole Bible, you can throughout the whole book of Acts, Paul varies his use of emotion and reason, his figures of speech and illustrations, his identification of the audience's concerns, hopes, and needs. He's caring about the people enough that he's talking to that he's actually knowing where they are and how to speak to them. I read a book once about the, uh, Jesus' parable about the rich, wrong, the rich young ruler. And the book concluded that we must always spend time preaching the law for conviction. Because Jesus, in that passage, takes pains to bring about a sense of guilt and his need to see his own self-righteousness. And so he props up this a parable that Jesus uses and says, here's a great model of how we should always talk about Jesus. The problem with that is that that's not the only interaction or story that Jesus told. In John 4, Jesus is talking to a woman at the well. And this has been a promiscuous woman. And she's longing for something deeper in her life. Jesus doesn't mention her sin at all. He talks about for thirst and being satisfied for spiritual thirst. And he talks about how he's the living water that she's been looking for and needing. And so I'm not saying that people don't need to come to a conviction of sin or hear about that ever. I'm trying to say let's not insist that's where people need to start when they're coming before God. Maybe for the first time. There are many different kinds of appeals, which is an appeal is here's an invitation as to why you should come or a reason why you need to come to God. If you look through this work, there's a, a New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson. He notes a variety of different reasons why people come to God. He says sometimes the appeal is to come to God out of fear of judgment and death, like in Hebrews chapter two. There is a fear of death, and that's what drives people to God. Sometimes the appeal to come to God is out of a desire for release from the burdens of guilt and shame. Look at Psalm 51. This is David writing. He says, cleanse me with hyssop, I will be, so I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. That whole psalm is about these inner feelings of guilt and shame, and he's looking for something to, of how to deal with that. He's coming to God with that need. Sometimes the appeal is to come to God out of the appreciation for the attractiveness of the truth. 
Jesus talks about the truth setting us free. Paul often appeals to his audience based on the truthfulness of Jesus' message. Sometimes the appeal is to come to God to satisfy some unfulfilling existential longing. Sometimes there's things going on in our hearts that we don't know, we can't put words to them, but there's a sense of unsatisfaction or unfulfillment. I think that's exactly what's going on when Jesus uses the language of living water. Sometimes the appeal to come to God is to help with a problem. Countless times throughout the Gospels, people are coming to Jesus because they're in need of healing. Because there's some problem in their life that they need help with. And so that's the thing that's driving them to God. And once they encounter God, well, that changes. That changes them. Lastly, what D.A. Carson points out is that the appeal to come to God can sometimes be simply out of a desire to be loved. The person of Jesus, is, as depicted in the Gospels, is a compellingly attractive person. His humility, tenderness, and wisdom, and especially the love and grace that he showed to everyone in society, drew people to him like a magnet. North America has traditionally been classified as a guilt-oriented culture, but more recent research is suggesting that we are shifting to a shame-based culture. There's feelings of shame. There's longing for acceptance and belonging. Feelings of, I want to be fully known and fully loved. I'm not finding that. About five years ago, I got involved in a ministry uh, we have at Cornerstone here called Meals Plus. For those of you that don't know, Meals Plus is a long-time Cornerstone ministry. It's had a variety of partnerships over the years. But basically, the ministry is this. We find out the people in our community, our greater community, who are in need of meal support because they just can't afford making ends meet and having some meals provided for them would really help them. And not only that, but they're a bit isolated and they don't really have a community around them. And so to have people caring about them and, and just showing interest in their life just makes a huge difference. So it's meals plus relationship, essentially. We primarily partner with an organization based out of St. Catherine's called Positive Living. Positive Living is a support service for people living with HIV and AIDS. They get to know their clients through their support, and then they identify people for us that they say, this person could really use some help. You know what? They're incredibly lonely. They don't have anyone in their life. Would you just get to know them and spend time with them? They have a long list of people like that in our community. And so we are always looking for more people to serve in this ministry. And the problem has always been we just don't have enough people to serve the amount of people that they say need people loving them in their life. So if that's something you're interested in, come talk to me. I'd love to tell you more about it and see if it might be a good fit for you. But like I said, I decided to get involved in this ministry about five years ago. 
And many of Positive Living's clients uh, are older gay men. Many of them were diagnosed with HIV during the 80s when HIV became more prevalent in North America and especially in the gay community. So about five years ago, I started serving a man named Graham. Graham was gay and had AIDS. He was in his early 50s. In some ways, Graham was a very optimistic person. He was determined not to live in hopelessness in light of his diagnosis. He had lost almost all of his friends due to AIDS. And he had very few people left in his life from his family who were on speaking terms at least. At one point in his life, he had almost committed suicide. And he was now determined to make sure that no one else would feel that kind of hopelessness he felt. So in a lot of ways, he was optimistic and positive. But in other ways, he was very cynical. Because as I began to learn, so many people had broken his trust or abandoned him in his life along the way. One of those broken relationships of trust was his relationship to the church. When HIV was becoming an epidemic in the 80s, the church, generally speaking, on a global level, did not respond out of compassion or love for people that were experiencing tremendous pain. Instead, the church, generally speaking, there's obviously exceptions to this, the message of the church was condemnation and judgment. In a sense, it was kind of like, you're getting what you deserve. That's the lifestyle you chose, and so live with the consequences. It was because of this and various other factors in his life, Graham wanted very little to do with God or the church. And so here I was, a 26-year-old single straight pastor, getting to know a 52-year-old gay man living with AIDS who wanted nothing to do with the church. But in spite of these differences, we found things to talk about, and very slowly, as we visited with each other each week, a friendship began to form. Every once in a while, the topic of religion would come up, and the conversations wouldn't go very well, (laughs) to say the least. Graham had his arguments lined up about why he thought Jesus never really existed and definitely never rose from the dead, even if he did. But below the content of the arguments, I could see that there was a deep cynicism towards God. And I knew that there was something deeper going on in his heart. After two years of getting to know him, the Niagara Falls Review wrote an article about a program that helped bring pets to people who could use that as a source of comfort in their life. So Graham had a dog through that program, and they decided to interview him about it. And so here's a a segment of that article that was in the Niagara Falls Review in 2015. He plays catch, sort of. 
His version involves running after the ball, capturing it between two paws, then chewing it. Occasionally, and only after some coaxing, does Zeus, the three-year-old king shepherd golden lab, who still identifies as a puppy, return the ball to the ever-patient Graham Keegan. It's a game they love to play over and over again. And even though it would seem this one-way dog-human ritual is hardly a reciprocal experience, the joy it brings Keegan is immeasurable. He's my big baby, says Keegan. I just adore him. Keegan grew up with all measures of animals, cats, dogs, a snake, some sort of salamander. A general rule for welcoming stray critters went like this. If it got in the house, my mother wouldn't say no, he says. Indeed, as Keegan talks about his love of animals, Zeus lies next to him on the sofa in his St. Catherine's apartment, resting a chin on his lap. Their friendship is deep. Just complete and utter love, says Keegan. I come home, and he's bouncing around, and, get, and I get licked all over the place. He's my dog. He follows me around everywhere. He just wants to be close. When times are tough, his love is unconditional. Keegan has been living HIV positive for 28 years. And in the moments when life has felt the most uncertain, the one consistent, trusted, loving friend has been his dog. The more I got to know Graham, the clearer it was to me that the thing his heart needed to know more than anything was that he was unconditionally loved. He could find this in human relationships, and he had rejected a counterfeit version of God that believed only brought condemnation to him as a gay man. And so he found that unconditional love in a dog. That dog was of great support to him, but he was not created to find love and unconditional acceptance in a dog. He was created to love and and find acceptance and belonging in his Heavenly Father. And so here I was trying to live out the great teachings of Jesus. And here's my context. A gay man who has experienced broken relationship after broken relationship and believes the God of the Bible has nothing but judgment and condemnation for him. How helpful do you think it would be to come to him with the message of, you're a sinner who's guilty, but God can forgive you? Do I believe he's a sinner and that he's guilty? Absolutely I do, as I do myself. Do I think he would need to come to a realization of that before he could ever come to God in true repentance? Of course, we all do. But if that was the starting point of my actions towards him and my words towards him, it would have kept feeding his idea that God came to condemn the world and not to save it. Which is the exact opposite of what Jesus says of why he came. Graham passed away about three weeks ago.
I wish I could tell you that in the end we had a great conversation and that he came to Christ. But that never happened. I don't know where Graham was at his faith before he died. But I do know that's not for me to decide. And that's not for me to take responsibility for. Although it feels like it sometimes. What I was responsible for was what Jesus commanded me to do. And that is to love him and to share the news of Jesus with him. In this last year, we had multiple conversations about the difference grace and unconditional love makes in my life. And I even had the opportunity on multiple occasions to pray for him. And he asked for prayer when he was feeling overwhelmed near the end of his life. And I pray, desperately pray, that God use those conversations and our friendship to do a work in his life. But I don't know. I don't know. But I know that I was supposed to be obedient to what Jesus has called us to do, which is to, to love him and to love the people who he desperately loves and to share why Jesus makes every difference in your life. Every person is a context. Every person has a unique heart that is experiencing the brokenness of this fallen world and is blinded by some way by their own sin. The message of Jesus, of his sacrificial love and the grace that he shows, is an endlessly rich resource to address this problem. And it is our great pleasure and joy that we get to be a part of sharing this and showing this message to the world. And as we spur each other on to live a life of obedience to Jesus, let's do the hard work of loving people where they are at. Because that's how God has loved us. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you that you love us. That your love for us is unconditional. You see, you see the brokenness of our hearts. And we know that it, it just crushes you and breaks your heart to see us finding other things to fill that brokenness and to fix that brokenness. And so we confess that even, even those of us that know you and say that we love you, we do this all the time. We try to find other things to satisfy us that aren't you. And so, would you show us again this morning, convince us again of your love for us, of your grace towards us, and would you not leave us just sitting with that knowledge, but would you spur us on to take your word to us seriously, to see the, the limitation of this time we have on earth. Thank you. Jesus, that you're good and that you are patient with us. And so would you, yeah, would you just give us that, that push that we need this morning to take our obedience to you and to the next level for your glory and for our good.